I want to share with you this message that, again, I have given the title, America, One Nation Without God, because that's my conviction. We like to think of ourselves as a Christian nation, and in the end, perhaps we still are, I don't know. But I do know, in all the years that I've been in ministry, for all the talk that we hear from pulpits and from church people, people who attend church services, we are seeing the condition of our country, America, grow worse. Now, of course, this is happening around the world as well, but the condition is simply getting worse. June the 14th, 1954, I was not even quite three months old when, by act of Congress, they inserted these two words in our Pledge of Allegiance, under God. Now, that had not been done before. So that's 68, almost 69 years ago, not all that long. I pledge allegiance to the flag and to the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Prior to that, Pledge of Allegiance sounded very similar, but that was inserted in 1954. 1863, our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, is standing in a small parcel of land in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And he uttered these words. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on the great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who have here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power, excuse me, to add or to detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work. Let me just say something to you. I did a bunch of Bible studies this week where I had this cough. If you're willing to suffer with me through this message, I'll suffer because I'm not going to give in to Satan. So if you're willing to have a message that is not entirely eloquent, I'm willing to give you the content of what I have. Not this. This. So Lincoln went on to say, it is rather for us to be here dedicated to this great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. Now listen, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. I'm reading the Gettysburg Address only really for just one point that this is where the idea to insert into the Pledge of Allegiance under God came from, the Gettysburg Address. But let me make a note here. 
Had Abraham Lincoln perhaps had the prescience to see what would become of the country since that point, he might have added that the country is only as good as the people. William Carey was a missionary to India. He lived in the latter part of the 18th century. He was born the latter part of the 18th century. He was commissioned to go to India to spread the gospel. Late 1700s, early 1800s. And something that he said, very few statements have made this type of an impression on me since I've read it. William Carey said this, I am not afraid of failure. I am afraid of success in things that do not matter. I don't know that I've heard a more imposing statement than that one. Regardless of his mission to India, of which the population of Christians is right now about 2%, which is still 20 million people, that statement really needs to take hold of our hearts. He said that I am not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of success at things that do not matter. Think about that. It's very close to what Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's a bit of an alteration. I'm not afraid of failure. We fail. We attempt to do things even for God and fail. He said, I'm afraid of being successful at things that do not matter. That statement there has made a deep impression upon me because it encapsulates what I have believed all of my adult life. I'm not concerned about having success in things that don't matter in the end, only in having success at preaching the gospel. Our elders said that there's no sense in repeating the obvious, but it's very difficult not to because we are constantly seeing again and again and again and again things that most of us who are older never dreamed that we would see in our time. And we can go through a long list. I'm not going to. But I can say that it's happening at such a rate that it's not impossible, but it's very close and highly improbable that we can remember all that's going on all at once. Yesterday's headline, one of them, had this. Six-year-old shoots teacher at Virginia Elementary School, police say. Six. I have three grandchildren that are six years old. It's hard for me to imagine them even having the ability to pull the trigger on any pistol. And how this all transpired, well, the police will investigate, but that's not the point. Never in our lifetime, most of us here, ever thought we would read a headline that a 16-year-old shot his teacher. And then we take note of this. Here in the state of New York, in 1951, so that's three years before I was born, in New York State, here, the Board of Regents took a stand and adopted a small little prayer that was to be prayed in public schools. Here it is. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence on thee and beg thy blessings upon us, our teachers, and our country. I mean, for the way that we pray, and for those of you, and I know there's many of you who understand the history of our country because we've reviewed it so many times, had many Bible studies on the details of the founding of our country. It was a fairly well-intentioned prayer, but not exactly entirely specific. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence on thee and beg thy blessings upon our teachers and on our country. And then within 11 years, in Engel versus Vitali, at the Supreme Court level, prayer was taken out of school. And then eventually after that, there was Bible readings and the Ten Commandments and on and on and on. And in a horrible misapplication of the words of Thomas Jefferson, when he talked about separation of church and state, 
when he wrote, he was assuring the Danbury Baptist Association that the government would not interfere with their Christian religion. In that case, the Baptist Association. And from there, we hear people quoting all the time, well, what about the separation of church and state? Hey, what about it? Someone just asked me just this week. I don't know this woman. Reverend, do you believe in the separation of church and state? And I said, as defined by Thomas Jefferson in his letter to the Danbury Baptist Association, yes. And that was all I said. But everything has become twisted, almost beyond recognition. But let me just say this, which will be the point of the message. That's what sin does. It affects every part of us, including the intellect. So we hear people bandy the words with well, a separation of church and state. Yeah, the government is separate from the church. But the church is not separate from the government. It never has been from the start of this country. Think of the very first city you know, founded, which was in Florida. It's the oldest, St. Augustine. That gives it away. St. Augustine. When newcomers were arriving to America on Virginia Beach, the first thing they did was to erect a cross and have prayer. And then we know here in New England, uh, the pilgrims and the people who got off the Mayflower and Song. We know all this. You take out a dollar bill from your wallet and it says, in God we trust. What separation of church and state? But you see, this is what sin does. It just takes away the ability to think properly. You know, as I've said before, we don't have to agree with history or we could say we want to amend things. We don't want it to be the way it has been historically. But only someone who's truly dishonest or has an intelligence quotient that's subpar to average intelligence could say this country was never Christian. And I'm not saying that this country was founded to be a Christian nation, but there is no doubt that the majority of our founders and so on prior to our founders and afterwards were Bible-believing, Bible-reading, dedicated Christians for the most part. Another article from October Drag queen story hours, radical origins, and the subversive sexualization of our kids. Drag queens. The question is not why are our schools and school boards inviting drag queens in to speak to our pre-kindergarten or kindergarten or first graders to read story hour and as a family-oriented thing, so they say. That's not really the question. The question is why does the drag queen want to be there? That's the question. And so we go from headline to headline. Yesterday, no, it's today's headline. Nevada parents sue school district over daughter's pornographic assignment. It's being discovered in state after state now in public schools, either in the library or someplace else, that the children in the early formative years of their so-called education are being made to read what would be considered at one point in time pornographic but this particular story, because I took the time to read it, is about a woman who breaks up with her boyfriend, and all the expletives are in there. In other words, referring to the male parts by the vulgar words we use, I no longer like your, and so on. And when I was in college, I met a girl, and they talks about going to bed, and then all the ex these are expletives that I'm not mentioning, of course, that are being given to young children in grade school. Now, it's necessary for us to go over some of the details of the times in which we live because it would appear many Americans, and specifically, I think, those who profess, well, I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I'm born again. Well, if that's the case, where's the rushing to the prayer meeting? Well, you know, there's no need to say anything to me. I don't need an email or an explanation. You go home and think about it. 
Because if we truly believe we are in the danger that we actually are, I'll use this word, and though I don't use it in a sense that it is perhaps the best word I could pick, but I'll use the word an obsession. We would be developing an obsession with the Bible and with prayer because we are in danger. It's all around us. And let me say this as well. For the life of me, I cannot understand why parents are still not bringing their children to church. We have come to a place, which is written about in the book of Isaiah, where children now dominate their parents. Anything from what they will and will not eat, which was different in my generation, and certainly my parents' generation. I mean, I'm grateful that whatever was put in front of me, I did eat. Um, but I don't recall my mother asking me every night, what do you want? <laughs> my mother's sitting here today, so she can correct me later. But I wasn't given a menu, and nobody in my neighborhood was given a menu. You may ask your mom, what are we having for dinner? And then she would just tell you what you're having for dinner. And something as simple as that. Then when these young people grow to be older, they think that anything that they want to do is a right. It's a small sign of what children do naturally. We all do naturally. The first word we learn is no. And we rebel against authority. We rebel against eating our meals and so on or going to bed early or going to bed on time. And it's cute if the child is three or two, and 14 years later, it's not so cute when that same young girl comes home pregnant. Or, as it is in California, by the way, you find out maybe a year or so later that she had an abortion that was approved by the counselor at the school, and they did not have to notify the parents. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. Now, here's my concern as I talk to you about America, one nation without God. My concern is, and has been for some time, that we... Christians are in the process of trying to convert Jesus. Here in the United States of America, it is almost an unwritten understanding that Jesus is an American, and Jesus is a conservative, a Republican. However, let me say this in fairness to that statement. In many, many churches, they make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is a Democrat. Jesus is neither. He's not an American. He never was. He never will be. He's not a Democrat and he's not a Republican. He's not an independent. He's not a conservative. He's not a member of the Green Party. Certainly not a communist. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's the Son of God. And I have been concerned for some time that we are trying to convert Jesus to be one of our greatest politicians ever instead of what he is, Savior of the world. In 1981, in Parade Magazine, Billy Graham was quoted as having had a conversation with Jerry Falwell, who was the founder of the moral majority. First of all, the question is, is the majority of Americans moral? That is a debatable subject. And I don't know precisely where the answer lies. But Billy Graham was speaking to Jerry Falwell, and this was quoted in Parade Magazine. I'd like to read it to you. In 1981, Billy Graham stated that he had told Jerry Falwell... I told him to preach the gospel. That's our calling, one preacher to another, one more famous than the other. I want to preserve, this is the words of Billy Graham, I want to preserve the purity of the gospel and the freedom of religion in America. I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. He went on to say liberals organized in the 60s and conservatives certainly have a right to organize in the 80s. But it would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. It's Billy Graham. And let me just say this, for those of you who are not too familiar with the history or biography of Billy Graham, 
He was with more presidents than any preacher has ever been. And he's stating that he doesn't want to see a wedding between the political right and Christianity. It would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. Now listen to these words very carefully. This is words of Billy Graham. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. Now I'm giving you a kind of a cornucopia of the scenario that we are facing here in America, reading from the headlines that disturb us the most perhaps. But you know that I've dug ever so gently with all of you here, all that are watching on television, though many are watching from foreign nations all over the world and on the radio. We have been seduced to believe what I just said that sounds like a joke. We have subconsciously come to believe that Jesus is an American and more so that he is a either a Republican, a conservative, or he's a Democrat and a socialist and whatever. And he's none of these things. That's all a deception. I agree with Billy Graham and I've been concerned about it for a long, long time because I have always seen our situation in this country as a God problem. I share with you on some occasions a book I have in my library. I've had it from when it first came out called Tempting Faith. And the subtitle of that book is An Inside Story of Political Seduction. The author was a Chinese-American David Kuo who was appointed by the Bush administration to be over a department that dealt with the reform of welfare and helping families and doing good things. He at the time believed that the more he got involved, we got involved in politics, the more the country would change. Having been totally disillusioned and a few other things, he asserted that the Republican Party under Karl Rove, this is his assertion, the Republican Party under Karl Rove had used Christians to gain votes for the Republican Party. He went on to say that many of the aides of President Bush and others lampooned us, Christians, as being, quote, useful idiots. Useful, but idiots nonetheless. One of his statements is a bit engaging and tragic when he writes this in the book. He said it was the bitterest irony. I came to Washington to fight for the family and destroyed mine in the process. You see, these are the results we get when we're out of the will of God. Whether you talk about a six-year-old shooting a teacher, drag queens being involved with our littlest, for some as children, for some as grandchildren. And still I'm going to mention, and yet still parents aren't bringing their children to church. But they don't like what they see. So what in the world are they thinking is the solution? We just finished watching yesterday one of the most rancorous debates in the House of Representatives as to who should be the Speaker of the House, and that has not happened since the American Civil War. Fifteen votes. Now, in my opinion, we are and we have been in a free fall, and we keep pulling on the cord and the parachute's not opening. Not since the American Civil War has there been such rancor that almost broke out into physical altercation, if you've seen it, over this situation. Everybody claiming their rights and everybody claiming a lot of things. But where in the world is God? Where in the world is God? The chaplaincy, for example, in the Senate began at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. When the Founding Fathers were arguing and debating and trying to hammer out our Constitution. And it was Franklin, a deist, who said to his colleagues, brethren, he said, you know, we saw our way through a revolution, through a war that we shouldn't have won. I'm just all paraphrase. That we shouldn't have won, but that God helped us. Again, it's a paraphrase. 
He says, now are we supposed that this is going to work? He says, why don't we submit ourselves to prayer? So they appointed someone there, a minister, to begin prayer. And that began the chaplaincy that we have in the Senate. It began by men acknowledging, as I read to you from the small prayer that used to be here, not only in New York State, but in other states, they had a much more lengthy prayer. Back as far as the 60s, 1960s, in Dallas, they had to go through a Christian catechism to graduate high school. And yet someone's going to come along. Once again, they're either truly mindless or they're just lying. That we've never had any relationship with the creator, with God, in a very serious and sober way throughout our history. We have just seen, I repeat myself, we have just seen the most rancorous debate in the House of Representatives with a very party that we're trying to convert Jesus to. And I say it's both sides of the aisle. Don't think that churches that vote Democrat don't do the exact same thing. They do. Jesus, he would support. No, Jesus supports the word of God. He is the word of God. The problem that we have here is that we are putting our trust in horses and we are putting our trust in chariots. And we must remember the name of the Lord our God. We must have a revival inside the church. We're worried about taking God out of the holes of Congress. We've got to put God back in the pulpit. We've got to put the word of God back in the pulpit. That's what we need. We are one country without God. And that's not representing everybody. I'm on social media much more than many of you are. And in places where you wouldn't want to go. And I see people's handles. God, country, patriot, Christian. Then I see their responses, either to one another or to others. And a lot of it's women. F-bombs and all types of vulgarity that I gave up 45 years ago. In the name of Jesus? I don't think so. And not only that, but that's not the weapons that we're supposed to use. A lot of times I see someone's handle and I'll just casually say, hey, you know, God bless, or praying hands as an emoji to pray, or whatever. It's totally disregarded. It's not even acknowledged. Well, once in a while it is. Because they actually think that there's some answer in man. And I will say to you that wherever man has put his total trust in man, it has not ended up well throughout history, and particularly biblical history. I wanted to read you one more thing before I get into the body of this message. And it's interesting, at least to me, giving you a type of a feel for the founding of this country. And for what we need most, we need to put God back in church, Christian church. We need to put God and his word back in the pulpit. Well, my dear friends, I tell you, we're going to have the exact same thing that happened to Israel in the Old Testament happen here. And slowly and surely, it's happening. The New York State Constitution, it's the state we live in, was drafted in Kingston, New York, which at that time was the capital, in 1777. And so the Revolutionary War is still going on, and New York State, like other states, draft its constitution, which has all of its preamble and articles. But it's Article 39 that I want you to be aware of. Article 39 in the original constitution of the state of New York, this makes a great point, a very important point, says this. And whereas, the, listen, the ministers of the gospel are, by their profession, dedicated to the service of God and care of souls, they ought not to be diverted from the great duties of their function. Therefore, no minister of the gospel or priest of any denomination whatsoever shall at any time hereafter, under any pretense or description whatever, be eligible to or capable of holding any civil or military office or place within this state. 
Now, having already converted Jesus to be an American, he's outraged at this. God is outraged that these people did this. Of course, the Constitution has been amended. Our New York State Constitution has been amended many times since then. Outraged. But if that's the case, then the point is missed. They were saying that the preaching of the gospel is too important to put you into politics. I had this discussion with a man who was politically connected at some very high levels just a few years ago. He and I had a good friendship, and he was sincere in what he meant. But he literally hooked me into a conversation I didn't want to be part of, had no interest in. And he said, you should be in politics, meaning me. I said, I have a job. That's not the point. You should be in politics. And this man actually liked me. And he wasn't of my political party's affiliation. I said, I would have a job. My job is to preach the gospel. And it was only a few days after that, when we were studying here the various original constitutions of the states, that I fell upon this Article 39. Now, do not walk away from this message saying that Pastor Ray was telling us that we shouldn't be involved in politics. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we can't put our trust in politics. We cannot put our trust in politicians. Forgive me for just going on here a little bit about this, but I think it makes the case for this message. Again, on social media, I see one of our newly elected representatives from South Carolina, a woman, walking in first day in Congress after her election. And you can't help but notice her statement was, here we go, let's do this, something to that effect. She had on a black dress that looked like when you hermetically seal things, like on a pallet of boxes or something with that very tight plastic wrapper where you suck out all the air. And someone made mention of it, and I couldn't help but to remark that I had the same thought. I didn't know if she was actually wearing a dress or had painted her body black. I mean, it was that tight. Well, the women were making comments like, this is disgusting, this is not professional, all that, but the men were making all the opposite comments, which I'm believing that she already knew what kind of comments men would make. This is what we have in Congress. This is what we have. And everybody's yaying and at a boy, or in this case, at a girl. To a reasonable mind, this spells trouble. To someone who's groping for hope in this type of display in our halls of Congress, Senate, and so on and so forth, all over, it's a vain hope. Our hope is in God, for we are on paper, one nation, under the authority of God. We acknowledge our dependence upon you, but that is not the case. Over the years, or last, well, couple of years, not that long, I've spoken to you of this statement made by Charles Finney. I am submitting to you, number one, that America is a nation without God. I'm not saying there's no one in the country that's born again. I'm simply saying that we are a nation that makes a profession that's more empty than it is actually valid. In 1873, in the midst of the American Civil War, Charles Finney made this statement that has tremendous, tremendous impact upon a reasonable mind and a Christian mind. And he's speaking all to preachers. Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. He's talking about the pulpit. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, and surely that is the case now, the media, we call it the media. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, 
The pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. Listen to this. This is 1873. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. Finney says, if there's immorality and so on, dishonesty and graft and greed and all this in Congress, the pulpit is the one that's responsible for letting that occur. It's his opinion, but it's mine as well. If our politics become so corrupt that the heavy foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. Charles Finney, 1873. You see, there has been a breakdown for quite a long time, long before any of us in this room were born or our parents or grandparents, inside the church. We've studied that and began a long time ago in the 19th century. And here we are now. You preach the gospel, it sounds foreign. Let me say it this way. It's easier to blaspheme the name of Jesus than it is the name of politicians. But Billy Graham, in speaking to Jerry Falwell, he said, preach the gospel. That's our duty, and that's my duty. I know how I vote, and you know how I vote. But the way I look at it, when it comes to every, at least every four years, if not sooner, with other elections, basically given two choices, vanilla and chocolate, and you have to make one, or forfeit your right and responsibility to vote, I'm not doing that. So you have to vote for what is best, but we need to fix our minds on Jesus. Jesus is the answer. The word of God cannot be violated without consequences, which we are seeing. Let me just add this as my own personal feeling. I used to get very twisted about things I heard coming from the political left. And I still do. But now I'm almost equally twisted about what I'm hearing coming from the political right. That's what Billy Graham was talking about. I have to keep myself informed, but I'm at the point where I almost can't read it anymore. And let me say this very boldly, because I've seen some people complain about this. I agree with them. If you are considered a conservative or you're considered a patriot and you've been vaccinated, you are persona non grata. You're not acceptable. And there's this whole denigration. You had the vaccination. You're deemed as unpatriotic. It's not stated openly, but it's there and it's there a lot. You can't even make a medical decision between you and your own doctor without now coming to the public forum. And why is that? Because we are a nation without God. We are a nation that has lost its moral compass, and we need God to be returned to the church. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. We were both young at the time. That spans back over 30 years ago. That We were talking politics, and he was sharing you know, the things that we need to do politically. And I said, well, let's think of it this way. If we did our job in preaching the gospel, and people's hearts were changed, and they were truly born again, not looking for just the benefits that God gives or looking for the heretical teachings men are offering from the pulpit about money and all of these things. I said, just think of it. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people would then be as good as the people. And if the people became good in the sense of saved good and born again good, then they would vote right. Then in our current system, men and women who are corrupted... And we know that they're corrupted. I'm not saying every single one is corrupted, but we know that they're corrupted. If the people would refuse to vote for corrupted people, and we could have honest people, not necessarily always saved individuals, people who really are truly dedicated to the word and prayer, which would be great, by the way, then things would straighten itself out in a manner of speaking. Do you understand my logic? God has got to be put back into the church. 
God has got to be put back into the pulpit. Now, I said before, and you can see how I've cleared up, thanks to your prayers and the Holy Spirit. We have to learn how to suffer together because we are certainly facing an uphill battle. To turn an ocean liner around is not the same as turning a little rowboat around. This is going to take some time, and we need Christ. We need God to return to the pulpits. Finney declared in 1873, if all these problems are happening inside the church, halls of Congress, and all in our society, the pulpit is responsible. So I solicit your prayers for me, that when I come here I can speak truthfully, humbly hopefully, but honestly. Pray that I never kowtow to the whims of men. Pray for me, I mean that. Satan, it seems like he never sleeps. It's just constant combat for all of us. And so now we need to adhere to the commands of God, the commands of Christ. And I think that it's going to be, should God grant us a third great awakening, it's going to be a lonely walk for a while. I expect that the greatest critics of messages like this one will be people who profess Christ. That's what I expect. And so number one, we have to realize the importance of the pulpit and the proper preaching of the word of God. Number two, we must have appropriate preaching. Some of you are familiar with the late A.W. Tozer, who was considered to be a prophet, but not in the loose sense that some people use it now, in his pastorate in Chicago. And listen to what he says about appropriate preaching. Those are my words. What God says to the church at any given period depends altogether upon her moral and spiritual condition and upon the spiritual need of the hour. Religious leaders who continue to mechanically expound the scriptures without regard to the current religious situation are no better than the scribes and lawyers of Jesus' day who faithfully parroted the law without the remotest notion of what was going on around them spiritually. The prophets never made that mistake nor wasted their efforts in that manner. Tozer wrote, they invariably spoke to the conditions of the people of their times. I wouldn't have to solicit your vote today to say, we want things to go the way they're going. And we don't. And so what are we going to do? We need to put God back in the church. We need to put God in the pulpit. We need to have preachers that will take the proper text and relate it to the times and the spiritual condition in which we live. And I'll say this again. I just think of little children, mostly. Adults, of course, but little children. When we have dedications, which we call a baby dedication, it's not a baptismal, it's a dedication. The parents take a vow to take the child to the sanctuary, to the church meetings. But in most cases, it's just rote tradition. We take pictures, it's a good thing to do, and on and on. Those steps, in many cases, are never taken to bring them to get educated in the Word of God. All of our founders, every single one, all 56 men that signed the Declaration of Independence or worked on the Constitution were all educated in the Bible. Doesn't mean they were all stellar witnesses for Christ. Some were. In fact, many of them were. But they were all educated in the Bible. They had a moral compass. In addition to their great studies, the many studies they did about governments that preceded ours, we had that then. We don't have that now. Let me say something else. Make sure you're reading your Bible from cover to cover every year. Three chapters a day, as I've told you, we'll do it. Read five, read ten, but at least three. And in that regard, as Horace Greeley once said, you cannot enslave mentally or physically a Bible-reading people. In that regard, we look at the Bible that was always considered a complete liberal education, not politically liberal, just an education in college, that you had to read the Bible from cover to cover as one of the great books of the Western world. 
Well, we see it much more than just a great book of the Western world. We see it and know it to be the book. But still, we don't have that any longer. And it must return to the church so that we can truly be, when we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, that we are truly one nation under God. Because Israel made the mistake of crying out, the temple, the temple, we have the temple, which was built, as you know, by Solomon, sanctioned by God, given specific directions how to build it, like he did with the tabernacle. When that happened, God kept saying, take away your vials, your music, take away your worship and your incense, which I commanded you to burn. Stop doing it, because I'm not listening. Then he says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. But that was predicated upon the fact that Israel would turn back to God, which sadly, they did not. They didn't heed the words of Isaiah. They didn't heed the words of Jeremiah, other prophets that were on the scene, less celebrated than the ones I've just named. And so the curse of the law came upon them. And we do not want to see that. Listen, that flag draped my father's coffin. My father fought in the Second World War and the Korean War. My father had seven brothers, and all eight of them were in the Second World War. Every single son that my grandmother had, she had eight boys, every one was in the Second World War. I do consider myself to be a patriot, but I cannot say our answer lies in politics. I can say our answer lies in what founded this country and brought us to this freedom. It was Jesus Christ and the Word of God. It was incessant prayer. Why are we neglecting prayer? Or when we do praise, just, God help me, I'm in trouble. Well, that's legit, that's fine. That's not all there is to the prayer life. We're commanded to make intercession for those that are over us, and so forth. But I'll get to that in just a second. And so we need God to return to the church, and then with that there'll be appropriate preaching. Not motivational speeches that are sprinkled with a few scriptures so people walk away with a Bible tucked under their arm and said, today we heard the word of God. No, you heard some verses from the word of God. You have teachers out there, and we know who they are, who will not talk about hell. They will not even talk about the cross. They will not talk about the blood. It's simply, I'm reluctant to say Paul Harvey because I think he's a good guy, but it's simply a motivational speech sprinkled lightly with scripture. And that's not the same as knowing the word of God. Now, on the other hand, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, this is most necessary, an obligation to obey it, to obey God. But without that, there's no sense of even reading it. Intense prayer has always been part of revivals in the church. Intense prayer. And if you want to come with me to the book of Daniel, we'll read this together. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 20. Daniel's in prayer. And I want you to notice something here. Daniel says, and while I was speaking and praying, and I want you to notice this here, confessing my sin. So now we know Daniel was, in one sense, like all of us, a sinful man. Elijah was a man of like passions. We read that in James chapter 5. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. It wasn't just his own sin. But he was talking about the sin of the nation. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, the same one that made the annunciation to Mary about the birth of Jesus, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, and then if you read on, and we won't read it now, the prophecy is given to Daniel during a time of prayer of how the Messiah would come. How many weeks were determined that Israel was going to be captive, taken captive? And how long they would be there? And as I've mentioned to you, and I want to reiterate this, 
The Apostle Paul said that he became, to a Jew I became as a Jew, to a Gentile I became as a Gentile, that I might by all means win or save some. It's quixotic to think that the preaching of a revival is going to save everybody. It never has. It never will. But by all means, it will save some. Ye are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltness, it's good for nothing. This is the answer. It's in Jesus. It's in the word of God. It's in the return to biblical teaching and preaching. It's in intense prayer. We read from Proverbs 14.34 that righteousness exalts a nation. And I don't think I would get much disagreement from too many people, politically oriented, that would say, well, our nation is righteous. And all I'd have to do is just produce the news and you can read it for yourself. I mean, it was one thing. It's terrible to think. It's just terrible. People who go into schools and shoot children, to think of Sandy Hook when they're shooting kids in kindergarten. Little children. Or of a six-year-old. And we go on and on and on. So much that it would be depressing if it wasn't that there is an answer. And the answer is Christ, but not a superficial, a little amulet hanging around the neck or ornaments that we wear on, you know, our fingers or even this here, this wooden cross. It's not the cross that Jesus died on. It just stands for what he did. We have to understand that righteousness exalts a whole nation and that adultery and stealing and bearing false witness. Look at our courts of law. They're a joke. When things happen, there's an investigation. Now we can't even trust the investigators. Now they're in question, and I think for good reason. Am I alone when I say this? We don't know who to trust. We don't even know who to trust. You read one report, I don't know who to trust. Well, I do know who to trust. I started out 45 years ago in this book. With God's help, that's where I'm going to end. It doesn't matter to me what people do, what they say, what they like, what they dislike. This is the answer. And in the end, that's in Daniel chapter 9, God outlines exactly how the program is going to go. And you can be sure it's going to end the way God said it's going to end. So he says, be saved. Save yourself from this perverse generation. That's the words of Jesus. Save yourselves from this perverse generation. Or as Billy Graham's advice to Jerry Fowler was, preach the gospel. That's our job. If we had that, we would have a near repeat of how America actually began regardless of what people say or lie about concerning our history. It began here. It began here. Prayer in the Constitutional Convention. And whose name was that prayer uttered? We already know. That's what we need. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. He wrote a few books. But I want you to listen to something that now becomes the individual. It becomes you and me. Instead of looking at the conglomerate the whole country, almost 34 million Americans. It doesn't start that way. It starts right with you. It starts with me. Jerry Bridges said this. Too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress and holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. When I say I am defeated by some sin, I am unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I am saying something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may in fact be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. Then he went on to say further, we need to brace ourselves up And to realize that we are responsible for thoughts, attitudes, and actions. 
We need to reckon on the fact that we died to sin's reign and that it no longer has any dominion over us. That God has united us with the risen Christ in all his power and has given us the Holy Spirit to work in us. Only as we accept our responsibility and appropriate God's provisions will we make any progress in our pursuit of holiness. What does this mean? It means that sin is a reproach to any people. And it doesn't bring the blessing of God. I have come to the conclusion and I realize this position that I'm in. After many years walking with the Lord and reading and seeing the things that I've seen and experienced the things that I've experienced. It won't be easy to see God move in the hearts of people because the hearts of the people have become very hard. Worse is when the scriptures have been planted there and they've hardened and crystallized so people think they know. So they think they can go out and say, you know what, F you, and F the government, and F this, and think they got God's approval. And then while we have pornography being distributed to grade school people, I will say that I agree with Finney. The pulpit has been responsible all along. So I solicit your prayers, I really do. Because my intention is to finish well. I don't have any desire to be somewhere on a beach somewhere. I mean, permanently on a beach somewhere. Sipping some type of beverage, relaxing while the whole world goes to hell. I don't have that desire. I solicit your prayers. But mostly that you would pray that God would once again awaken our nation. That's B. Before he awakens the nation, A, he must awaken the pulpit. And people are going to come and they're going to hate this and they're going to go someplace else. So be it. That's the task that's ahead of me and that's the task that's ahead of you. Last thing I want to read to you is from Charles Finney's memoirs of what happened when both he and then, of course, others were truly filled with the Holy Spirit. That it just wasn't a byword or a nice song. We played a nice song today, one that I like. But we need the Holy Spirit, not just a song about him. Listen to what Finney wrote in his memoirs about his revivals, which took place, by the way, all around us here. He said, the spirit of prayer that prevailed in those revivals was a very marked feature of them. Not just his preaching. It was common for young converts to be greatly exercised in prayer. And in some instances, so much so, that they were constrained to pray whole nights until their bodily strength was quite exhausted for the conversion of souls around them. Now, I'm submitting to you that this is a work of God. You could stay up all night quivering and then come to me and tell me all about it. And I may say to you that that was just an exercise of your will or just some type of soulish thing. When the Holy Spirit touches you. And this is what I said at the beginning of the message. I can't explain the feeling that I was having last night. It was a feeling of trepidation. It was a feeling of complete helplessness. And before I leave my office, I always say, God, if you don't touch the message, nothing will happen. I could be quoting your word, but nothing will happen. We need the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of men, to save souls. And people have to be full in. Finney would continue, there was a great pressure of the Holy Spirit upon the minds of Christians, and they seemed to bear about with them the burden of immortal souls. They manifested the great solemnity of mind and the great watchfulness in all their words and actions. It was very common to find Christians, whenever they met in any place, instead of engaging in conversation, to fall on their knees in prayer. Not only were prayer meetings greatly multiplied and fully attended, Not only was there great solemnity in those meetings, but there was a mighty spirit of secret prayer. Christians prayed a great deal, many of them spending many hours in private prayer. 
It was also the case that two or more would take the promise, if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. And make some particular person a subject of prayer. And it was wonderful to what an extent they prevailed. Now, if you know anything about the revivals of Finney, and if you don't, just read up on them. The claim is that he made more converts to the Lord than any other evangelist that's ever lived. Maybe an exception would be Billy Graham. Answers to prayer were so manifestly multiplied on every side that no one could escape the conviction that God was daily and hourly answering prayer. Daily and hourly. By the way, that was the same experience George Mueller had in England right around the same time. Not a revival. He ran an orphanage. If anything occurred that threatened to mar the work, listen, if there was any appearance of any root of bitterness springing up or any tendency to fanaticism or disorder, Christians would take the alarm and give themselves to prayer that God would direct and control all things. And it was surprising to see to what extent and by what means God would remove obstacles out of the way in answer to prayer. That last statement there should be taken to heart. Fanaticism. I'm not promoting fanaticism. I've had no part of that. Disorder. I've seen that for so many years in my pastorates. God told me this. God told me that. Thus saith the Lord. And none of it that I've ever, well, not none of it, so much of it has never come to pass. Was it well-intentioned? I think so. But it was disorderly. It was fanatical in some cases and didn't produce any fruit. We need to do as we read in the prophets to break up the fallow ground those of you who farm and those of you who grow gardens, you understand that the ground has got to be very fine. The soil has got to be very fine. You can't have big clods in there. And that's what it means to break up the fallow ground. Break up all the clods until the heart is soft again. So that when the seed of the word of God goes in, it will grow the tree of righteousness, which is designed to grow. And I always want you to think of this because this is how I measure myself. I don't measure myself against any of you. I don't measure myself against anybody's biography. That includes Billy Graham. I don't compare myself to other people. I don't try to speak like them as a preacher. But this is how I measure whether I'm walking in the spirit or not. I ask myself, am I increasing in love? Love for my family, love for my friends, love for you. Am I increasing in love? Am I increasing in joy? Now this seems, and I've got to just take a minute, if you could just give me another minute, to explain this. Among the many things that is misunderstood, joy is one of them. Joy to some people means you pop off the cork from a bottle of soda and it's just spilling all over the place. And we hear giggling and silly stuff, which I'm not really against that personally. I like to laugh. I really do. But that's not what joy is. Joy is a stable condition. It's a smile when you look at somebody in the face. During a period of revival, you know, we're allowed to smile. More than that, it's evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Amen. You say, well, I'm angry at the situation in our country. Well, to some degree, okay, I am too. Well, you habituate that and you find yourself in the works of the flesh. It's not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's fruit, love, joy, a sense of peace. A sense that no matter how bad things are, we're fulfilling the will of God. And I could preach another sermon on that one alone. That what was given to Daniel in chapter 9, or what we read in the Genesis, the elder shall serve the younger, in the case of Esau and Jacob, and on and on. That God is saying, this is how it's going to go. In the last days, perilous times shall come. They've arrived. But we are still to occupy until he comes. That means we can't just say, okay, nothing we can do. No, there's everything we must do. 
We must be preaching. We must have the pulpit returned to God and not men. We must understand what can happen and what does happen when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, ever-increasing faith. Your faith should be increasing and increasing and increasing. Don't make excuses anymore for those things that trip you up. You say, I'm glad I'm not an adulterer. What are you, Pharisee? You've lived your whole life in fear. Your whole life has been spent in fear. In the case there's any doubt about my compassion for anxiety and depression, just go to YouTube and look up The Oasis, and you'll find 455 videos on helping people to overcome it. But it's not a fruit of the Spirit. The fear of the Lord, yes, but that's just entirely different. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-temperance, self-control. This is how you know you're advancing in Christ. And this is the hope for America. That its citizens, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, will be filled with the Spirit of Christ. Will be filled with the Spirit of God. America, I submit to you, is one nation without God at the moment. We weren't always. And there is hope. I believe there is hope. What I'm seeing that encourages me is I'm seeing younger people in their 20s and 30s, pretty much seems to be in that realm, that are saying to churches, we don't want the fun and games you're offering. This is what I'm seeing. And this is what I'm hearing, by the way, from people in that age group when I talk to them personally. They're looking for the real deal. They're looking to do, forgive me for this, it's not theologically correct. They're looking for the hard work. Others are just looking. You want the comfort zone. It's been taken away from us. We are no longer comfortable. We're not going to be comfortable. So it's time for us to fight back, but God's way. Let us pray that God returns us so that we can say in all honesty, we are one nation under God. Now, I'll add one more thing. I turned on to Monday Night Football. I still enjoy watching football. A little here, a little there. And I turned on the game, and people are on the field. Football players are crying. I had no idea what happened. I do a quick search on the internet and say, what's going on in Cincinnati? Then eventually they run the clip of DeMar Hamlin. You see the impact on his chest. He gets up from making this tackle. He collapses and goes into cardiac arrest where they're working on him for nine minutes. To my knowledge, this has never happened in football since I've been watching it anyway. Cardiac arrest. And we prayed. I still pray for him. I don't know him, but I still pray for him. My point is that life can change like that. You're 24. You're in the NFL. That's not supposed to happen, but it happened. And I'm watching grown men. I'm watching a man. I don't know how tall he was on the Buffalo Bills, six foot six, hugging the little guy who's barely six feet tall, maybe. And it just shows you the ephemeral nature of this world, this life. I'm not afraid of failure, said Carrie. I'm afraid of success in things that do not matter. And I will submit to you that the future of our country matters. The future of what happens in the halls of Congress and Senate and so on, it matters. Let's not be afraid of failure, that we prayed and we read and we studied and we witnessed and no one got on the boat, but nobody got on the boat in Noah's day either. Let us not be afraid of that type of failure. Let's be afraid that we're having success in things that do not matter. I'm going to ask you to just do what we do before communion. Take a moment to examine your heart. I'll say this under the presumption that you're born again. And that's not an insult. It's just I don't control who is and who isn't born again prerogative of God. But under that presumption that you're born again, are you living the life you were ordained to live in Christ? And if not, you say, well, I have a lot of obstacles. Well, who's the obstacle? What is the obstacle? Overcome it. We cannot let anything get in the way now. 
Can you, like William Carey, say, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of success in things that don't matter. And as we go forward, remember, like a fighter climbing into the ring, the opponent is going to hit back. Satan's not going to stand there and just walk away. He's going to hit back. At that point, we just fight harder. We just go one more round. Today, can you say in your heart of hearts that you're 100% all in, that you're not doing anything to try to convert Jesus, but let Jesus convert you? And if that's the case, you'll make a great citizen or a better one and be able to do what's right in the sight of God, that this nation can have hope. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, we come to you. We read in the scriptures that because they loved not the truth, God gave them over to a strong delusion with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. And Lord, I'm praying today that we would be granted the privilege of being a part of a third great awakening. A small part, perhaps, but a part. But Lord, if in your mind you know America has crossed the line, then we remember Noah when you shut him in and his family in the ark. That was the end. That was it. We must submit to your will because your will is going to be done. Yet we still pray for America and also the nations that are watching this broadcast today all over the world. Pray for them, God. Pray for ourselves. To turn America back to God, to Christ. We've seen what a nation without God is done and what we are becoming. Pray for our little ones. God, a thick hedge of protection around them. Protect their innocence and their minds. And the parents, God, wake them up. Let me see that the most important thing in life is to know Christ, is to know God. Take the blinders off of people, God. We pray for our nation. Our president now is a reflection of the people. But so was the president before him, and the one before him, and the one before him. All along down the way, all 46 of them, it's always a reflection of the people. Help us, God, to be a people that deserves leadership that's righteous. Help us, God, to be a people who deserve a leadership that's leading us in the right direction. Help us, God, to see an end to these things. The corruption, like a cancer, has gone right into the very investigators who are investigating the corruption. God, help us. We need your help. We are a nation without God. Your name is on our lips, but you need to be in our hearts. You need to be in us in such a way that we can be a part of saving ourselves, saving our families, and saving the country that we love. Help us today. Help my friends that are sitting here in front of me and the many that are watching the live stream or listening on the way of the radio to be able to measure their growth in your spirit by the fruit that you say is coming from your spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Help us, God, to understand the condition of people without Christ and to pray for them. Help us to understand that this preacher standing here without God is worth nothing. My messages are worth nothing. How much I quote your Bible wouldn't matter until you touch it. Until your spirit fills me, I can do nothing without you. Amen. And let us not here, a time for truth at very least, think that we can, that we can do anything without you. Help us, Lord, to understand the truth and that you are the truth. So, Lord, like Lincoln, who also paid the full measure for his service, we cannot hallow the ground Jesus, you've already hallowed the ground when you bled and died and set us free. Now, God, help us to be the vessel and the venue, the tool that helps set others free from their sin. It causes God to be the salt of the earth, as you said we were. Help us to be filled with the Spirit of God. 
This week, remind us to love you with everything we have, our intellects, our IQ, everything we have, to be full out in love with you, prove our love for you, and then that we love each other. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.